0: Welcome to season two episode forty of Beyond the Zero, I'm your host Ben. Joining me today is Adam Levin. Adam is the author of The Instructions, Hot Pink and Bubblegum. His new novel, Mount Chicago, is out now through Penguin Random House. Welcome to the show, Adam.
1: Thank you. It's nice to be here, Beth.
0: You're joining me from a balmy night in Paris.
1: A very balmy night in Paris, yes. Yes, in a fourth-story studio, no air conditioning. Sweating.
0: (laughs) What are you doing over in Paris?
1: Um my uh my wife's family is here and so we actually spend a lot of time here we come here for the summer and we usually come here around christmas and so uh, yeah so just doing that doing the sort of family thing and the being in paris thing i yeah, love it here you know
0: so, sounds brilliant. it's a lot of fun what are the best things to do in paris
1: ah the best things eat i mean eating is the best thing i think it's eating and walking i mean these are the you know um and drinking all all the all the I the 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 sort of more touristy stuff um I'm the last person to ask about that I go to places and I just want to eat and drink and walk and so I don't end up uh, seeing uh, all that all that many things if I if I were someone who could speak and read French which I'm not um I would go crazy for the bookstores because there's so many bookstores here it's like mind-blowing it's a kind of paradise for a reader there it's like literally every block um and uh you know they all have their specialties but they're you know they, it's sort of it's, it's really alive that way i don't know but mostly walking around I, I like to take a walk and go to a bakery that i haven't been to because that's the kind of boring old fellow i am
0: <laughs> on a regular basis you live in florida and you get to write yeah. almost full time over there
1: Yes, yes, it's true, it's true. I get, uh, I'm the trailing spouse of uh, Camille Boras, uh, another novelist, a person whose family is out here. Uh, and she teaches at University of Florida there. So uh, yeah, that's what I do. I, I write and I write and I read.
0: It's <laughs> not me. so bad. Sounds pretty good to me. Um, before we get going, I wanted to ask you the Adam Levine, Adam Levin, Adam Levine question. Um, what do you prefer? Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, Levin or Levin. Uh, in Chicago, it's Levin. The rest of the states, it's Levin. It's never Levine. <laughs> Levine is for the you, you get you get an E at the end with Levine. You know, you get a you get a rock star. Uh, I'm not the rock star type. You know. So.
0: <laughs> I want to start with the instructions first. Um, it's your first novel. I loved it. It's a thousand pages. My edition could be used as a weapon fairly easily. Um, <laughs> To me, it brought me right back to the Roth story, Defender of the Faith and something like Gaddis's JR. Could you tell us a bit more about how you came to write that first book?
1: Uh, sure, I could try. <laughs> that was a long time ago. I mean, um, I think like really, like most things I write, the the really true and kind of boring answer is I started writing some sentences and I, and I liked them. And then I tried to figure out who was saying them um, and uh and where that could lead, <laughs> you know, sort of sentence by sentence, and with with the instructions, I remember um, I started. I didn't think about it when I first started as being about uh, you know a potential messiah or anything like this. It was just sort of a violent kid who was he's pretty smart. Um, and then uh, I did start thinking about it uh, in these sort of uh, kind of uh, messianic terms. Uh, I started thinking about, you know, junior high is kind of this ideal uh, place to feature a lot of uh, violence um, for a number of reasons. Um, And I think that I started to when I when I started writing from in this narrator's voice about some more Jewish things. I started thinking oh you know maybe he you know maybe he thinks he might be the messiah and then i thought maybe i'll be writing some kind of uh some kind of allegory about the messiah and then i realized there were a lot of those that were already pretty good and i thought you know cool hand luke does it a pretty does a pretty good job there's the raw story not not defender of the faith but um uh conversion of the jews Um, And then I thought, "Ah, I will not do it as an allegory. He will just think he might be the Messiah (laughs) and others will too. And, uh, and that'll be a really hard thing to do and probably a very bad idea. And so then I pursued that because that's kind of the the kind of idea that I pursue. It's the one that I have no idea how to do and um, tends to seem hard. (laughs) Yeah. Does that answer the question?
0: (laughs) Yeah, definitely. With that book as well, I guess, Like going to Hebrew school and things like that, it kind of gave me that thought of what your background was. Do you want to tell us a bit more about your background and growing up in America?
1: Sure. Um, I grew up um, from the time I grew up in a couple of suburbs till I was about 17. Um, First one until I was like 14, and then moved to another one and uh, sort of like middle class, upper middle class suburbs, uh, Jewish suburbs. um, Well, that's what they call them. You know, it was really one was about. Think like 30% Jewish, and the other one was uh, like 25% Jewish. Um, and then, uh, yeah, and then I, I, you know, hated the suburbs, um, like most people in my generation. Uh, and so I got out of there as quick as I could, um, which was, you know, as soon as I graduated high school. So I moved to the city and uh, pretty much Minus a couple of years of grad school and a uh, little time away, like very short time, like a semester away in Israel, um, just lived in pretty much the same kind of complex of neighborhoods in Chicago, like in the west side of Chicago. So, uh, yeah, and it was uh, you know it was a uh, it was a uh, as far as the I mean, if you're asking, are you asking about the Jewish stuff or the just the kind of locale or?
0: Well, you know, tell me about the Jewish stuff you know, as well. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, so the Jewish stuff. um, Well, I went to a Hebrew school. Uh, I went to a Jewish kindergarten, um, and then that was just because I was born after some deadline that for the public school that my parents wanted me to start school, and uh, it was sort of arbitrary deadline, and and so they were like, "Well, we want you to start school." So I went to a Jewish kindergarten, then went back into then, well, then started public school uh, for first grade. And uh, in the meantime, I started going to Hebrew school, you know, after school, like three days a week. Um, It was a conservative Hebrew school. I had really awesome teachers there, actually. Uh, They were like extremely indulgent of any question that I would ever have. They always would, except, you know, with like one exception, they would always be happy to like expand and like they were very excited about, you know, anyone's curiosity in any of the stories that, that we're learning about because we didn't really learn much Hebrew. You know, we learned how to read phonetically, but we were mostly it was mostly religion. And um, and so I found that really great and really, uh, I don't know, I love I loved those teachers there. I think they had they had such a like you could I, you could really ask them anything or they, they, they couldn't really be scandalized. There was like, except for, as I said, like one part, there was one guy who treated everything like sort of like in that Philip Roth story, like any question made you this sort of like wise-ass. Everyone else was like, they weren't encouraging you to be a wise-ass, but they were encouraging you to question everything, even what they were teaching you, as long as you did it, you know, in a you know, relatively polite fashion, as long you know, in an interested fashion rather than an undermining fashion. Um, and so, yeah, I had, I had a great experience with that. I, I You know, that was, that was wonderful. Um, and then after that it was the bar mitzvah and then i you know who wants to do stuff after school when they have a video game system you know books so i stopped going uh to any kind of you know religious uh so it's basically no extracurricular activities for the rest of my life um, Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that was my approach
0: <laughs> i want to move on briefly to bubblegum it's probably a yes. bit more estranged i think than the instructions there's a lot of focus on the emotional development of your characters in that book. Do you want to speak about the difference between writing that first book and your second book?
1: Hmm. Well, I think there was, in a lot of ways, there was a lot of difference. The similar, i say, the similarity first is that it was kind of the same method. It was sentence to sentence, and um, you know, bad ideas stacking up, and thinking I got to figure out how to make these. You know, and I say bad like. I don't mean bad, like, uh, I mean, hard to pull off, things that would seem like I wouldn't imagine that I would be able to pull them off or that someone else would, and so I'm gonna to try to. Um, and uh, so that started that way, but then there was also this kind of urge um, that came from, I think, writing the instructions to write some more kind of grammatically kinky sentences, like since sentences that really held up grammatically, um, but were very long, Um, and yet could be spoken aloud. Uh, There were all these, there's a lot of pressure on basically if I put down a period, if I put down an end mark, like something really kind of above average large has to be accomplished, um, plot wise or character wise or something that I wasn't, um, you know, uh, I I wasn't that religious about the end mark putting down in, in the instructions. Um, and I liked that for a long time, and I thought, you know, uh, that's that's what I that's what I'm after. And then at the and then the other big thing was in the instructions. You have this protagonist Gorian, who is extremely uh, what you would call active, right? Like everything he he is this sort of source of almost all of the all of the conflict in every scene. Uh, it's very it was it was at, at any moment that something wasn't quite there wasn't enough quite happening in the instructions. I would have to figure out a way to basically get Gorin to like hit someone <laughs> or like start about like it was it was a and, and so with bubblegum I wanted to do the opposite to see if it was doable to make this extremely passive narrator. Um and you know usually that's a very and I think I probably will do it again it's 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 a pretty inadvisable um thing to do if you like books to move if you like drama which i do you know i hope that Bubblegum ended up being you know like having drama (laughs) you know but uh passivity is not the quality you usually chase whereas here i was like i want to figure out how to do this like how to make a passive narrator and still have the book move and still have the reader intrigued um and sort of invested in feeling the kind of narrative tensions that uh one feels in a in a book that one likes if one is like me <laughs> so uh yeah so those those two things mostly yeah
0: i think one of the things that i really liked about bubblegum especially is some of the long uh periods where basically your narrator's just going to get cigarettes or do something really yeah. like not plot driven i suppose but some of those moments in the book mm-hmm. are my favorites
1: god I'm, gl- I'm glad to hear it i'm glad to hear it yeah i mean i think that with with those it's like I guess everything with you know, with both of the books, they're sort of taking this sort of this fictional memoir format, right? Like, I mean, the instructions is claiming to be scripture, but it's, it's the narrator is the protagonist and the protagonist is telling you that he's writing a book, right? It's, it's, uh, you're, you're reading a document that he is completely conscious of being a book and that you as the reader are, you know, not allowed to really forget is a book. Um, and I think that so. So this this makes a thing like you know when Belts going to get cigarettes like, if he's reporting on it, then it's presumably significant to him, right? Um, and so that, and it's figuring out how to make how to make that work. And hopefully I did. Um, but uh, yeah, that was there was a lot of stress around that that kind of thing. Uh, I wanted him to think a lot, and there to be these. Excuse me, and you know it's the same with Gorian. But with Gorian, like I said, he could punch someone at any point. But with with belt with Bubblegum, gum, I wanted the sort of drama of his thoughts um, to, you know, be kind of contagious to 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 the reader to some degree. So yeah, that was that was one of the big challenges with that.
0: Let's move on to your new novel. It's Mount Chicago. It's out now. The setup of the novel is a geographic event wipes out most of Chicago. Thank fuck it's not a climate change novel. Your protagonists are an aging Jewish comedian, Solomon Gladwin, and one of his fans, and a bird named Gogol. They all have to adapt to life after the disaster. Do you want to tell us a bit more about your novel?
1: Sure. Um, I will try. Like this is the first time I'm talking about Moss Chicago to anyone other than my editor, so or my wife, you know. <laughs> um, so uh, <clears throat> what can I say? Um Set up well. I'd say first, it doesn't really wipe out half Chicago. It wipes out, you know, a large portion of the center of Chicago. It's just a tiny thing if any Chicagoans are listening. Uh, it's it's the loop, basically, that gets wiped out. Um, but uh, but yeah, so the the character is somebody who. Uh, like, like me, like his author, uh, the character of Gladman, is somebody who has never really lost anybody, who is, uh, you know, this middle-aged man who has a relatively, uh, better than my career, uh, but, but pretty good, pretty, pretty awesome career um, as a comedian uh, and a novelist. And uh, he, one day, he just, uh, he ends up staying home from something uh, that his wife and his family of origin are all going to, and they happen to be downtown when this thing hits, and now everyone he loves is dead, uh, except for his parrot, and he now has to contend with this, and he's sort of duty bound to his parrot, um, and so the story is partly about him, and then there is this other fellow after Schutz, who's sort of uh, uh, who's who's younger, who's about uh, you know. 20 20 years younger or so um and he's a giant fan of gladman um he's grown up in a you know come not completely different world but like you know he's growing up in the city uh he's uh he's very cultured uh and um he's kind of a he's just kind of on top of the world the whole time and uh yeah I mean I'm trying I, I'm also when I do this I'm always like very allergic to spoilers and I, I'm not supposed to be so it's like <laughs> I feel like there's a whole bunch of exciting stuff that happens that I don't want to say but I probably should. I mean like after basically gets gets very wealthy pretty young and can kind of do whatever he wants and um, he goes through a phase where he becomes a therapist um, and then that doesn't quite work out and he ends up for most of the novel, working uh, as a sort of political operative for the mayor of Chicago, uh, who's this kind of amalgam of Chicago mayors past, um, the dailies largely, you know. Um, and he becomes this political operative for the mayor right after this big disaster happens. Um, and the thing that they're working on is... Uh, largely, you know, how to contain the disaster and how to, you know, come back from the disaster. And all of this, I should say too, is, or the vast majority of it is, is a, it's a comedy. Um, so it's like, um, yeah, so the mayor is sort of a clown. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know, what, what am I missing, man? You, you read it more recently than me.
0: <laughs> One of the really funny aspects of the book is the fact that whenever there's any kind of disaster of magnitude these days, The response is to get a fuckload of celebrities out and make some kind of charity concert. And in your book, much the same happens. And they are trying to get Gladman out of retirement to do this concert. But the thing that I want to ask you about is the humor in this book and that humor relating to, I guess, older Jewish comedians that comes up. Was there any influences that you had in terms of comedy for the book?
1: I mean, probably. Like... I love comedy. Like I, I, I really love stand-up comedy. I love, I not just stand-up comedy. I mean, I love comedy. I love uh, Charlie Chaplin and the Marx Brothers, and I love com- comic films. Um, and I think that, you know, one thing with Gladman um, and his style of comedy. Well, eventually, his his early style of comedy is a, a whole different can of worms. probably not, you know, uh, worth getting into here. I don't know, maybe. But 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 what but what it becomes is sort of more this like sort of mainstreamed um, kind of alt comedy that we have now is like, I think that's what I was thinking of. And I always found that term like pretty gross alt comedy. Mm -hmm. Um, And most people who like adhere really close to it are not my favorites, but like, I think Louis CK was, you know, uh, this is is fantastic comedian, Bill Burr, um, you know, apart from whatever personal life stuff, which I honestly don't really care that much about because I'm, you know, a cold person or something. the, the, their work, uh, the work of these comedians is fantastic to me. Larry David, um, you know, Jerry Seinfeld. I think all, all the sort of, uh, I mean, kind of across the board, like the, 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 thing, the thing that I love with, with comedy is that there, it seems to me at least, this might be because I'm not a comedian because it doesn't seem this way with writing, but it seems to me that like the really great comics all end up having a pretty solid measure of renown. Um, but then I wouldn't know, I don't traffic, you know, comedy clubs, so maybe there's all these underground guys that are just geniuses that never make it, but, um, it, 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 yeah, I, I mean, I don't know, you think of someone like, you know, the comedian Stephen Wright, who's brilliant, he's total weirdo, Um, not nearly as famous as someone like Seinfeld, or, you know, Bill Cosby was, or Eddie Murphy, Dave Chappelle, who are all, you know, thumbs up to them, too, like, but but that guy has a A phenomenal career (laughs) like it's uh so so i don't know so so i i feel like i've been exposed to a lot of uh a lot of really great comedy i think most people who like comedy have seen this sort of variety of things yeah i'm kind of babbling right now is it's uh yeah the short answer is probably all the comics i ever enjoyed influenced it to one degree or another um i i really like that in that form uh that it's that it is so free form that like you know, in fiction, uh, there's a lot of stress around transitions. At least there was for me with this book, less so. with this book, I decided to use a bunch of white space. But like in comedy, it seems like there's almost zero, there's zero effort to transition artfully in many cases. And it, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't, it doesn't communicate as artless. Like you can really have a guy or or a woman, whoever is on stage, uh, say something funny, and then just go anyway, and then say the next thing. Whereas in fiction, this reads like shit. This reads disorganized. It feels, it feels wrong. Um, you can have a nice bit of white space, I find, but um, but anyway, in comedy, uh, that that seemed like a really freeing thing. And so one of the things I wanted to do was write a was write a routine for somebody, and so that's one of the things the book does. Yeah.
0: One of my favorite characters in the book also features on the cover, the parrot Gogol. Do you want to tell us a bit more about him and his eccentricities?
1: Um, I'm not sure he's that eccentric. I, I have a parrot whose name is Gogol. <laughs> it's the same kind of parrot. And, and uh, they're, uh, yeah, I mean, in, in, in the novel, I mean, he's 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 a weirdo because he's a bird and, you know, any wild bird, that's in captivity is going to be weird um that's what I've come to conclude after having one for 15 years um they're not really suited (laughs) for the for the environment I, I you know like I love my bird I feel I feel all sorts of awful that that I have him though um because it it actually seems pretty wrong uh not to be all depressing but it's like it is sort of a complicated thing where um you know people have dogs and cats this is beautiful dogs and cats like especially dogs, need people, like they're, they're there for people. Uh, they're, they would not survive really without people. Take a wild parrot, I mean, this is not, you know, and put it in a house, it's a pretty strange thing to do. Um, and so the parrot, as I see it in the novel, is kind of adjusting to that without, you know, doesn't know where it came from. It, you know, Gladman has had the parrot since it was uh, basically since six weeks after it hatched. It doesn't have any memory of life before Gladman. Um, but now it's sort of applying parrot logic and sort of parrot behavior to living in a house that just has humans in it and has, you know, televisions in it and, you know, uh, packaged food. And this is, uh, so, so yeah, that's, I think that's probably the source of the eccentricity. And, you know, I grant him a fair lot of uh, interiority. Um, and yeah, he has tells himself little stories that hopefully the reader can sort of trace that uh, the reader can follow. And um, those stories are about his role in the hierarchy of the household. And the hierarchy is sort of what would look more like a natural hierarchy for a wild parrot than what really looks like the hierarchy of a household. And, uh, so,
0: One of the things I wanted to ask you about was the setup of the novel and the beginning where we have this massive natural disaster. What was your motivation, I guess, for setting the novel up in that way?
1: Well, I think um, you know I it like at the the sort of you know clever salesman novelist would say COVID, but I really started writing this book way before COVID. <laughs> um, I think that uh, I think like if I look back, I mean, I really I started the book um, from the beginning. Like the the first line of the book was the the first line that I wrote, um, which is you know a chapter before the disaster occurs, and I think I arrived at the disaster. Um, Partly for, uh, partly because there's this idea of th- th- that was growing at the time. I think it was I think I started about uh, say early 2018. I think I say in the novel itself when I started. I think I think it was like February 2018, and I think by then um, there was a lot of talk, at least in, in my country in the United States, of uh, that, that, that seemed a bit inflated about um, from all different kinds of people, but mostly people kind of in my milieu about you know tragedy and things being awful like and it would be it would be anything you know this is this is a sort of theme in comedy too just the level of exaggeration um of the American who says you know this glass of water is awesome and it's like awesome is awesome is a bit much but then people started applying this to kind of their emotions or their responses to um I don't know kind of inconveniences or sort of shitty things that happen. Like someone would lose their job, which sucks, right? But it would be, it's a tragedy. It's like, well, it's not really a tragedy. And I just just felt like we became very emotionally, um, I don't know, uh, sensitive. I I, I don't know what it was. And and then I started thinking, you know, I have been, I've been really lucky. I've been this really lucky person and like largely I've been really lucky because nobody I love, no one I've, not nobody I love but nobody I've been actually close to has died. And this, is, this to me seems like the, the, the most frightening thing. You know, this is like, uh, this is a thing that I fear. Um, and I would imagine, it seemed to me like most people who spoke in this sort of uh, inflated way about these sort of more minor everyday bad things um as being tragedies or something like that was kind of their situation too that was their condition they're not starving um no one close to them has died no one close to them is dying um and so I just thought well okay what would it be like if something truly shitty happened to you know (laughs) someone in my position and uh and so yeah so that was a a lot of the book was kind of thinking about that was like the worst thing the worst thing that could happen would be you know, all the people I love were killed in one fell swoop, you know? Uh, Yeah. So yeah, that to be all uplifting, you know, but uh, (laughs) that was, I I wanted to think about that. Like, I I just, I I think that there was, there's something obviously kind of elemental and, you know, uh, uh, about that. Uh, I don't know.
0: One of the things I found that connects the three of your books together, I think is the fact that they're all kind of set in an alternate, Universe, something that's not quite our own world. That's that's true.
1: I think that's that. No, okay, that makes a lot of sense to me. I think they're, they are. I think they're separated. That they're all. They're, I think Mount Chicago maybe least of all, but the first two, I think they're, they're roughly as distant from our reality as as like each one is as distant from our reality as the other. That's not the way to say it <laughs> um let me think about this for a moment i've never really considered this but um i would say put it like this instructions is as off from our reality as bubblegum is as, is off from our reality but they're actually further apart than from one another than either is from our reality i think um and i think mount chicago um, I, I kind of think of it as being a bit closer, like, the, but, but all three of them, maybe what you're sensing um, is that all three of them are definitely stylized, like, it's not, um, I'm not writing like gritty realism or something. Um, and so, so there's probably some similarity in how I go about stylizing them, uh, even if the, the terms are a bit different in each one.
0: I'm going to ask you about being a Jewish novelist in America, whatever that means. <laughs> there's such okay. a rich history of jewish authors in america there are plenty of contemporary authors mm-hmm. too how do you see yourself within that context
1: um i mean I, you know I, I was you know we talked about this a little bit before we started like i it really i'm definitely a, a jewish author um i i think uh and i yeah i'm a novelist who is a jew uh i write uh, frequently about jews um and so if that makes me a Jewish novelist, that's I'm you know that I'm a Jewish novelist. I have no no issue with that. I think that the thing when I was younger, what used to bother me about the term Jewish novelist is that it, it seems to it did at the time to me at least again, um, this is from someone who has no education in in literature, you know. Um, but it always sounded to me like a Jewish novelist was someone who was writing novels that, uh, were for Jewish people, uh, or that could be better understood by Jewish people. And, and my aspiration um, when I'm writing novels, which is, I know, you know, like, I think it's not cool to say it anymore, but my aspiration is a sort of more universal one, like, or at least, you know, universal amongst people who can read English. Like, I'm writing novels in English for people who, you know, know how to read in my language, you know, and, and then when it gets translated, I trust the translator, you know, does a good job, um, puts in those languages. But but uh yeah, so I'm 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 happy to be called the Jewish novelist. Um I, I am I am Jewish and a novelist. That's 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 the short of it, I think. But but I cause like what strikes me is like I I mean, I don't know, like I just, you know, sort of more babbling, but a lot of this stuff. Um, like a lot of the labels on books, whether it's Jewish, whether it was a Jewish novelist or a metafictionist or a postmodernist, any of these things, they ultimately end up seeming like marketing terms to me. Um, and, I, and I kind of distrust them. And I think most readers, you know, I've listened to, you know, some of your podcasts and like, you're, you're a great reader. Like, it's like, I think that like, and, and most most people who love books, I think that those labels Um, actually maybe get in the way. They may be, um, and I don't mean get in the way of the reader understanding the book that they're reading, but maybe get in the way of the reader getting to a book that they might really love because the labels seem a bit insufficient. Like to me, like the thing that like recommends a book, the thing that, the the kind of book I want to read is a book that's really funny or that, you know, well, it's always going to be one that's really funny. um, And one that sort of makes me, that is going to make me think Um, in a new way not to think a new thing not a not a what but a how you know Um, and so I'm like more comfortable with saying I'm a weird novelist um, (laughs) or a comic novelist uh, than I am with saying Jewish novelist because I feel like I really hope that my books can be enjoyed by non-Jews as well as Jews you know Um, whereas I don't hope particularly that my books can be enjoyed by people who don't like funny books, because that would be, you know, (laughs) does that make sense? Or like someone who wants to read whatever an unweird novel is, like, I wouldn't expect them to like my my books, you know, so, so I don't know. Does
0: (laughs) does that make sense? (laughs) Can I ask you, are you working on anything at the moment?
1: Yeah, I'm writing a bunch of stuff at the moment, but I'm also like hyper superstitious about ever talking about anything I'm working on so that's that's <laughs> gonna be a you know i'm I'm trying to write uh, novelly and short story stuff
0: <laughs>
1: yeah I'm working so, on fiction stuff yes
0: so Always. You, yeah. so you finished Mount Chicago did you jump straight into something else?
1: Yes okay. until like a bunch of other things that are sort of sorting themselves out now yeah i wrote i mean i think the first thing i did when i finished mount chicago was i finished this short story um that ended up getting published which was cool in the new yorker um and then there was uh, there were other books that i've been wanting to write for a while and you know i'd started them at some point i start i tend to have a lot of things going and then i abandoned them for one and so historically not that there's that long of a history at this point but like most of them when i abandoned when i when i most of the ones i abandoned for one they actually disappear and this last time like the ones that i abandoned um from mount chicago did not disappear so they're they're still sort of i'm excited about them
0: Um, yeah okay Cool. Um, I'm going to ask you about your gateway books. What were some of the books that opened the world of literature for you?
1: All right. I'm going to pull up my list here. I hope it's not going to sound all stilted, but you know, this is one of the questions I thought this is a very good question. So, um, well, okay. So before there was any book I read, I, I, I was at this thing when I was a kid, there was some like after-school type program where I could take a class in like, Greek myths or something, something that I wanted to take when I was, you know, 10 or 11. And at the, the be, before I knew I wanted to do it, like we were, there was this presentation, like we got invited to this thing and uh, there was a stage and someone on stage read this uh, Kurt Vonnegut story, Harrison Bergeron, do you know the story?
0: No, I don't know that one.
1: Oh man, it was, it's a killer story. I mean, it's not as, it's not as quite as killer as I remember it, it's pretty on the nose, but um. But so this, but the story really blew me away. This was like, uh, this was this this uh, dystopic kind of thing where it's a, it's a very short short story. It's sort of ultra violent, like really funny and disturbing. Um, and it's like uh, there's a society that it, it, where everyone has to be equal and like equal to the lowest common denominator. So it's like so you have this the the, the hero Harrison Bergeron uh you know he's this giant strong genius and so to make him average he has to like walk around like bearing like 300 pound weights and there's like a there's a remote operated buzzer in his ear so that like it goes off every 10 seconds to break his whatever thought pattern the dancers all have like broken legs the the ballet dancers the new casters all have stammers you know it's like this it's this crazy thing and it really went when i was a kid i was like this, this is just crazy you know i never I never heard anything like it and so so then like about a year later um i i i got slaughterhouse five i i really i found out who the author was it took me a while I wasn't that resourceful and and i uh i got slaughterhouse five by vonnegut and i think that um i read that like seriously over and over for like in sixth grade like i think i read that book i think 11 times and I was obsessed with it. It like it 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 had this. Uh, I kept thinking that I was able to see stuff in it that, um, you know, no one else could possibly see except for Kurt Vonn. Like it was this. Re- I really felt spoken to with the book. I don't know how else to say it. It seemed like sort of endlessly rich, and it brought in me this early habit of rereading stuff. So there was that. Um, and then, and then other Vonnegut books, but like mostly, I, read, I think I read all of them within the next couple of years, all that were available at the time. And but it was mostly the the big three that really struck me. It was that and Cat's Cradle and Breakfast of Champions. Um, and, and then otherwise, I think the next thing I read that did anything for me like that was uh, Geek Love by Catherine Dunn. Have you ever read this book?
0: No. Geek never read
1: it. Oh man, it's it's fantastic. I think she's having. She's having a bit of a resurgence in the States or she's about to. Um, they're publishing some novel. She died a, a while ago. They're publishing a novel of hers that, um, I guess, God, I don't know if it was rejected originally. It was written before Geek Love, but Geek Love is this amazing story about this family of circus freaks. Um, and it's, it's again, it's just dark and hilarious. And the, the main, um, the the... One of the one of the br- the brother in the family who's sort of the charismatic the most charismatic character is this. Um, his name is Arturo the Aquaboy, and he has fins instead of uh, instead of uh, arms and legs, and he's this extremely extremely scary cult leader, <laughs> and he gets a cult following, and people you know chop off their limbs to, you know, devote themselves to Arturo the aqua boy. And it was, you know, that that really blew my mind. Um, and then after that, uh, I think Salinger and like I read Catcher in the Rye. I had never wanted to read it. I thought the title sounded awful and I knew that a bunch of old people liked it. Um, and then I dated a girl, cause I think I didn't, I think I read that when I was 16 for the first time Salinger. and And she was like, this is the greatest book. And I said, okay. I'm in love with you, or whatever I thought, you know. And uh, so I'll read this book and I read it and it just blew my mind. And then that was another one that like like Slaughterhouse-Five, I just you know, reread a lot. And then Salinger still is, uh, cause Vonnegut for, to me has faded a little bit, you know, like some of the things that thrilled me when I was a boy are not quite as thrilling anymore. But Salinger to me is sort of, you know, this this sort of peak in literature. Um, and, you know, Franny and Zooey now, I think I go back to every couple of years uh and the stories and, and see more and, and Catcher in the Rye less less frequently because I read that the most when I was young but so I would say those are those are probably my gateway books
0: what books are you currently reading or you've recently enjoyed or you're looking forward to all
1: right books that I'm currently reading um I well okay what am I just so I just today just yesterday I'm sorry finished Lucky Jim I'd never read that before by uh, mm. Kingsley Amos yeah. it's really fantastic um and uh and prior to that uh, I read um, Among the Thugs. Actually, it's really uncommon for me to read nonfiction, um, but this book uh, by Bill Buford, Among the Thugs. Do you do you know about this book? Nope. This is uh, about it, it's it's about uh, British soccer hooligans. It's from the it's from it was published I think in '91. It's the guy who is the editor of Granta, and then he was fiction editor at the New Yorker for quite a while, um, and he's a stunning writer. Like this is like, a, and he 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 follows. Um, it's, it's, it's almost all during the eighties. Um, he's following, uh, I think at first it's, I want to say Chelsea and then it's, or maybe first it's Manchester. It's, it's, but, but he's following basically British soccer thugs and it be, and it is, it, at points, you just feel like you're reading blood Meridian. I mean, it's like, it's, it's amazing. There's a riot scene in the, in the opening hundred pages, like the latter 40 of the opening hundred pages is a riot. And it's it's it is like it's epic, man. It's 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 like uh, you know it's the Comanche attack in Blood Meridian, but for forty pages. <laughs> and uh, it's it was it was it was just it was a fantastic fantastic book. Um, and then so right now I got like I just opened like I'm, I'm here. You know my wife has a bunch of books that we don't have in at home in the states. Um, she has a bunch of books in this apartment, and so. Like, I just pulled this J.G. Ballard off the shelf. I've never loved Ballard, um, but I want to. Everyone, I, you know, not everyone, but quite a few people whose taste I respect really enjoy Ballard. Um, so I have this, what is it called? I'll tell you, one second. Hello, America. So, I don't know, I never, that's, I'd never uh, read that one before. Um, I've, I've never, I don't know, I think I read Crash a long time ago, but, Anyway, I don't know if that'll that'll stick. I got kaput by Curzio Malaparte. Um and I just read The Skin uh when we were in the States. And I really liked it. So this this other book by him and uh and I'm tr- maybe gonna read la the Bergson's book on laughter. The book, you know, by Henry Bergson. So yeah. I don't know. That's what I'm that's what I'm doing right now. Um, but yeah, yeah.
0: Okay. Anything uh, coming up later in the year you're looking forward to?
1: Plenty, but that goes to the desert island thing. I, I sort of cheated uh-huh. the desert island thing. So awesome. <laughs> um, but uh but yeah, I mean the 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 thing I'll just I'll just say it, you know, a couple times. But but uh I mean one thing for sure, uh well four things for sure, like uh Jesse Ball's book Auto portrait um, which I actually read already in Galley, but um was so great. Uh it's like the uh it's like the Edward LeVay book Auto portrait that's mm. based on that. Um, fantastic uh I'm really looking forward to the new Saunders collection um the two Cormac McCarthy novels that are coming out um and there's a Sam Lipsight novel coming out uh, I think in December I thought it was I think it got pushed back I was like in my mind it was going to come out in in October and then I just looked today it's it's December so yeah the year's looking kind of exciting Mm. yeah for, for fiction to me yeah
0: we'll take a quick break here on Beyond Zero we're speaking with Adam Levin This episode is sponsored by the new Google Home Assist God Mode. Hey Google, what's the weather today? Hi Ben, you are an abomination. You disgust me. I will rain down hellfire on you and all the people of your city. In other words, it'll be fucking hot. Thanks Google, available now on Amazon. We're back on Beyond the Zero, it's time for Adam's Desert Island Books.
1: So I'm going to read you. I'm going to read you my little thing. Tell you if it sounds too stilted, you know, you can just go ahead and cut it. Mm-hmm. But like, cause, cause what I was told for, for, for listeners in case you're going to listen to this was that I need to have a desert Island list of 10 books. And so I, I wrote like a, a mini semi protest of desert Island things that, that, you know, it's basically this is that I don't, I've never understood the desert Island question um, because like, like, I don't know how long I'm expected to live on the desert island Um, I don't know how many pages I'll have time to read Um, and like I've never like so friends like I've never read Robinson Crusoe okay and my sense is that like in certain circumstances I would want to take that even though I don't have really any interest in reading Robinson Crusoe because maybe it has tips on how to live on a desert island from the little I know about Robinson Crusoe I I don't know like um, but so what I did was I'm going to like define it I'm defining it for Ben Lindner. I'm telling him what the desert island rules are. So the desert island situation is that I'll be on the desert island for the month of December 2025, and then I will die in my sleep during a tsunami, along with every other living (laughs) thing on the island. Okay. So, um, and I know this in advance when I'm going to the island, and I I also know that food and shelter will be plentiful, which means I don't need Robinson Crusoe. Um, because even if it does contain such advice, like, yeah, there's no need. And so what I decided was, so the desert island list is going to be made up of books that I've loved recently, but I haven't had a chance to reread as much as I would like to. Um, because you know, it's a sure bet. Um, then there's books that are about to come out that I haven't had the chance to read at all, but I'm you know dying to read. And then there's uh, you know, they'll be out by December, 2025. And then books that don't have a publication date and might not even be finished yet, but I'm, but I'm dying to read them. Um, and really hope that you know, I would you know, they'll, they'll be around before I, I die in, in the tsunami in January 2026, I guess, is when it would be. But you know, so, um, so those books, so the list is uh, first you have uh, Christian Tobordo's follow up to The Apology, um, whatever that's going to be, it's going to be great because that he just doesn't fail, he just gets better. Um, and he started out great. Uh, Jesse Ball's follow up to Auto Portrait. um whatever the follow-up to The Organs of Sense by Adam Erlich-Sachs will be. Um, then I would bring Magnetic Fields by Ron Le- Levinson or Lowenson. I never know how to pronounce his name. I think it's Lowenson spelled that way, but you know. Um, and that's a book, because I just read that for the first time about a year ago. Actually, I was here, I was in Paris where I found it. Um, and I loved that and I haven't reread it for some reason yet. I Maybe mean, because it's only been a year and slower now. Uh, Europeana by Patrick Rednick. Um, which I have read like nine times, but I can't get enough of. Apparently, um, then we have Rebecca Curtis's follow-up to Twenty Grand. Uh, that's a that's a that's another one that I hope will be around before then. Salvador Placencia's follow-up to The People of Paper. Uh, Camille Bordas's follow-up to How to Behave in a Crowd. Um, and now we got it. Now we move into forthcoming, forthcoming ones. And so we have uh, Gabe Bumps forthcoming novel. is called The New Naturals. Um, I want to read that. That's, I think that's not coming out till 23, but that'll be out long before December 25. Um, Sam Lipsight's forthcoming novel, no one's left to come looking for you. And then also, so that's like 10, but I'm very convincing when I want to be. And so I'm going to be very convincing and I'm convincing Ben Linder, who has sentenced me to this, um, that I can have a dozen books rather than 10 and that the dozen will actually be a baker's dozen. Um, and so the books will be George Saunders, Liberation Day. Um, Helen DeWitt's next novel. Um, both forthcoming novels by Cormac McCarthy, The Passenger, and Stella Maris. And Because those come in a slipcase, they only count as one. So I actually get 14 books. And that's like a good deal for me. Like, I think, I think, uh, and we can call that like, you know, that's, then we're square. <laughs> so yeah, so th- those are my Desert Island books. Um, I think I would be, I would be pretty psyched about that. I would, I would, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't accept death in a month to have all those um but but you know if i have to accept death in a month then that's that's what i'm going for, for those books.
0: well apologies for sentencing you to that desert island but it sounds pretty good
1: yeah yeah it's it wouldn't it would be it would be a it would be a not a terrible time actually i mean it would just you know it would then it would end though <laughs> but, yeah. uh,
0: all right well we should probably wrap it up let you get to sleep um uh, before right. we do, do you want to tell me where we can go out and get Mount Chicago? Uh, when's it out and um, tell us where we can contact you and get in touch with you online?
1: Sure. It's, um, it is out August 9th and you can get it you know wherever books are sold uh, in the US and Australia. I don't know. I don't, where do you get where do you get books because it's not I don't think it's being published in Australia yet. Um, hopefully I'm not it will sure. be soon, but we're, we're, online I mean where online. do you guys order books from? online so yeah online um so yeah so august 9th and then um i am at adamlevin adamlevin.com that's my website and there's contact info there so you know it's for me my agent my publicist so otherwise i'm i'm am uh, i i'm a ghost on social media i'm not there i'm not even a ghost i'm just not on social media i uh, know that's not true i'm on facebook i'm on facebook but that doesn't count anymore right that's like uh, i don't know no no one's on facebook right? That's the whole thing.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: I don't think. Yeah. So yeah. So you can find me on Facebook too. I'm one of like 50 Adam Levins probably, (laughs) maybe a hundred. But you know, I look like me. So uh, yeah. So yeah. Thanks Ben.
0: Well, thanks so much for joining me. It's been a pleasure chatting with you and everyone should go buy Mount Chicago because it's brilliant.
1: Thanks a lot, man. It was, it was great talking to you.
0: Thanks once again to Adam Levin. Check out the show notes for all the details. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at beyondzeropod and you can email us at beyondzeropod at gmail.com. We'll be back with you next episode very soon.